Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week John Kiriakou. He is a former CIA officer who in 2007 became the first U.S. government official to publicly confirm and describe the CIA's use of waterboarding on Al-Qaeda prisoners, which he described as torture. In January 2013, John Kiriakou was sentenced to 30 months in prison and was released after serving more than 23 months. Since then, he has become a tireless writer and speaker on whistleblowing, torture, and civil liberties. He is also the only U.S. government official to have been put in jail for any reason related to CIA torture, even though he didn't torture anybody. Uh, John Kiriakou, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much. Very happy to be with you. Uh, Great to have you on here. Uh, You are going to be the recipient of this year's Sam Adams Award for Integrity in intelligence, uh, what do you know about that? This award and its and its other recipients. Oh, I've been following the the Sam Adams Award for years, and uh, first of all, I have to say how how humbled I am to be in the presence of 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 these giants who make up the Sam Adams Award committee. It's it's people I've admired uh, in many cases from a distance over over more than a decade. So just to be associated with them is so thrilling for me. I'm really looking forward to this ceremony. I, I know at least a, a few past recipients are planning to be at the the ceremony, which is going to be uh, 4 p.m. Sunday, September 26th at American University in Washington, D.C. in the K Center Chapel. And this is going to be sort of at the very end of a three-day uh, conference, No War 2016 conference that people can register for at worldbeyondwar.org or go there and, and watch the live stream. Uh, but uh, Larry Wilkerson, Thomas Drake, uh, whistleblower, past recipient, Larry Johnson, uh, possibly Ambassador Craig Murray, although the U.S. State Department seems reluctant to let him into the country. <laughs> I, I'm outraged by this whole uh, Ambassador Craig Murray situation. Craig Murray is a hero. Craig Murray is a whistleblower in his own right. He was the British ambassador to Uzbekistan. Uh, in the early 2000s, and he blew the whistle on the Uzbek torture program. The Uzbeks were torturing their own people, in many cases, at the behest of the United States. Yeah. And so he fell afoul of his own government. He was recalled back to London, forced into retirement, nearly lost his pension, although in the end he was able to save it. And, um, and he's, been, uh, he's been a hero for, for other whistleblowers and anti-torture activists around the world. So, so here's, a, here's a greatly honored former ambassador who has been to the United States literally dozens of times, never with any kind of problem. He's never been accused of a crime. He's certainly never been charged with any crime. And then, just coincidentally, as he wants to come to Washington to attend the uh, Sam Adams Award Ceremony and to, and to present me with this award, he finds himself banned by the United States. They, they are claiming, as uh, at the moment as we speak, uh, that uh, anyone from one of these countries that typically gets to waive visa requirements 
who's been to Iraq, Iran, Sudan, or I think Somalia uh, since 2011 can no longer do that and has to get a visa. And because uh, Craig Murray has been to Iraq, uh, even though, you know, Iraq has supposedly been liberated and so forth, uh, that's a problem. Uh, It's also my understanding that he was invited to Iraq by by the government of Iraq. And so it's not that he surreptitiously slipped in across the border from Turkey or something. Sure. He was invited as a guest of the Iraqi government. Um, that, that policy that you just uh, uh, enunciated is an important policy to stop potential terrorists from entering the U.S. Um, so if you are a, uh, an ethnic Somali teenager from Toronto and you went to Somalia for however long and then you want to come into the United States, okay, yeah, great, we should look at your case. But if you're a retired British ambassador who traveled to Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government, that's not why this policy was written. Yeah, well, we're making a lot of noise about it in the United Kingdom and the United States, and people can go to diy.rootsaction.org and sign a petition that you've signed and many uh, important people have signed, uh, and thousands and thousands of people have signed, uh, and hopefully it'll make a difference. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you also, John, I, I was happy to see you at an early screening of this new film on Edward Snowden, uh, and this... Record this uh, show will be airing after the embargo on talking about that film, uh, and I wondered what was your impression of that story of a whistleblower, and and how did it compare to your own? I mean, as I was struck, of course, by the thousands of colleagues of Ed Snowden who knew what he what he knew and said nothing, but also uh, how darn long it took him, how many crimes and abuses he sat through before. He came around in his mind to become a whistleblower. Yes. Uh, Jesslyn Radak, uh, who's an attorney representing whistleblowers, Jesslyn represents both Ed Snowden and me, once told me, actually in our very first meeting, I I said to her, I want to thank you so much for taking my case, but I have to tell you, I'm not a whistleblower. And she said, but you are a whistleblower. And I said, I'm not. I remained silent for five and a half years, and I never said anything. And she said, look. First, no whistleblower ever thinks he's a whistleblower. Second, there's a legal definition of whistleblowing, and that is bringing to light any evidence of waste, fraud, abuse, illegality, or threats to the public health or public safety. So she said, you're the poster boy for whistleblowers, and there will be others. And certainly, less than two years later, there was Ed Snowden. Um, That movie, Oliver Stone's Snowden, it it was cinematically beautiful. It was brilliantly written and acted and directed. It was chock full of stars. But I had a knot in the pit of my stomach through that entire film. And I, I had this pit, or this, this knot in the pit of my stomach, because it was like watching a slow-motion train wreck. Here's a guy who wants so desperately to do the right thing, but he knows that it's just not going to end well. Our governments don't want us to do the right thing when it comes to the national security state, whether it's torture or secret prisons or warrantless wiretapping. Nothing good is going to come of your whistleblowing. Now, my, my belief, my position on Ed Snowden is that he is an American hero and that he has done a public service 
the likes of which we haven't seen in a generation, really two generations since the Pentagon Papers and Daniel Ellsberg. So I think Ed Snowden should be rewarded for his heroism. He should be invited to come home to attend his own ticker tape parade in New York. Um, one thing that made me really happy, David, was, was the way Oliver Stone told Snowden's story in just a plain, linear fashion so that any American can understand Ed's motivation and can understand the good that he did for the country. Yeah, this is what always strikes me about whistleblowers uh, and anti-war activist veterans. Uh, you know, the, the, it's never the people who sort of quietly fumble along apathetically and and obey their orders and go home and don't really care about their job. It's the it's the true believers, the enthusiastic uh, advocates of spying and torturing and killing and bombing for the good of the world. Right. Who, when they figure out that it's actually hurting the world, switch and and have the courage uh, to take risks and have the skill to 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 blow the whistle. Uh, I mean, is this is this your impression? Did you go from enthusiastic, true believer to whistleblower? Um, you know, I was a true believer when it came to terrorism. Uh, I and I, I wasn't unique in this respect, but. Um, I was one of many CIA officers who opposed the uh, the Iraq War. Uh, many of us just thought it was a disaster and that it was a war crime. But yeah, when it came to terrorism, I was a true believer. Like everybody else in the building, on the afternoon of September 11th, 2001, I volunteered to go to Afghanistan and to fight or to do anything the CIA wanted me to do. And indeed, I found myself in Pakistan a couple months later as the chief of CIA counterterrorism operations. So, yeah. I, I believed that we were the good guys. There was no doubt in my mind until I got back and was first approached about this torture program um, that we were the good guys. Yeah. But the, these operations, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan, seem to, if anything, be increasing terrorism rather than reducing or much less eliminating it. And I you, think that's exactly what happened. I think that... The fact that we are in a, a permanent state of war, that we have transitioned to a permanent wartime economy, and that we are bombing something like seven countries or nine countries right now as we speak, has done nothing but to perpetuate this, this, uh, this constant uh, war. Uh, I think this is a disservice to the American people. I think that in many cases we're committing crimes against other countries. And um, we need a policy change immediately. Yeah, it, seem, it, it seemed predictable. Uh, and yet we have a society, uh, a culture in which very smart, well-educated people like you and like Ed Snowden in this movie, who's introduced as a smart conservative in the beginning, uh, you know, believe that that war and militarism is somehow going to be helpful. Yes. Uh, and then through experience, figure out otherwise. How, how do we manage to educate so many thousands of, of young people who you know, in some cases are you know, computer geniuses like Ed Snowden or, or very skilled at the job they were doing like you were, to, to believe such nonsense? Oh boy, that's the $64,000 question. Um, you know, I'm frequently asked variations of that question on college campuses around the country. And 
I used to think that, well, you know, maybe I ought to be a realist, and I know the CIA is not going away, and really the only, ch- the only way to change the CIA is to do it from the inside. Maybe I should be encouraging young people to apply to the CIA. After 10 or 12 years, they'll find themselves in a position of authority, and they can maybe change it. That's silly. That's just never going to work. We need to fight on Capitol Hill. We need to protest in the streets. And I think most importantly, we need to be litigious bastards about this. And we need to, to find people standing to sue the CIA and the national security state at every opportunity. And I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a group, an anti-torture group in North Carolina, that began by protesting at a, a small municipal airport where the CIA was keeping its rendition aircraft. And they were largely ignored. Even the local, yokel, small-town papers ignored them. But they never gave up the fight. And from protesting, they went to blocking the road. And then they went to sit-ins inside the terminal building. And they just sort of upped the ante at every opportunity. Finally, they sued. And they filed a federal suit. They actually lost the federal suit. But they were enough of a, of a pain to the owner of this airport that he finally asked the CIA to just leave. And if we're patient and we take those kinds of actions and we're not afraid to sue and to be real jerks about it, maybe we can see some successes. It's, it's a good lesson. It should be a model for others. I know that at Shannon Airport in Ireland, they're attempting the same. Uh, it's... Uh, it's a shame, John, that you are the only one who has gone to prison over this this criminal enterprise. Maybe some other people need to go there. Uh, we look very much forward to uh, to seeing you receive this award on September 26, the Thank Sam Adams uh, Award for Integrity and Intelligence. Uh, John Kiriakou, thanks for, for what you're doing and for coming on Talk Nation Radio. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It is my great pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Murray to Talk Nation Radio. Elizabeth Murray was Deputy National Intelligence Officer for the Near East in the National Intelligence Council before retiring from the CIA after 27 years. She is now a member of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity and of Sam Adams Associates, the organization awarding the award for integrity in intelligence to John Kiriakou. She is also member in residence of the Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action. Elizabeth Murray, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks, David. So you, you're doing, I, I've, I've introduced Anne Wright, I can't count how many times with that retired after 27 years line. I think it was the same number of years. Uh, how did you come to spend 27 years uh, with the U.S. government and the CIA uh, and now are participating with me in a conference on abolishing the institution of war? Uh, it seems like quite a switch. Um, it was a little bit of a journey, David. Um, I initially had intended to spend only three years 
<laughs> in the government. Um, my first job out of college was as a journalist, believe it or not, um, back in 1982 <laughs> and early 1983. And I had this opportunity to join what I then didn't realize what was part of the CIA. It was called the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, and that was actually the open source arm of the Central Intelligence Agency where news from around the world, um, hard news from different countries, was monitored and translated into English um, and then analyzed so that our policymakers could understand what foreign leaders were saying about our country, what foreign newspapers thought about our political actions, and we would then sort of... Um, Give, give out full texts of those leader speeches and those editorials and also tell our policymakers what those, um, what those issues, what the leaders' uh, statements were implying for U.S. policy. So it was very innocent, actually, on my part, and it was only later when a letter, when I expressed interest and a letter came back to me on CIA letterhead that I thought, whoa, but the job itself sounded so interesting. I was going to be hired as an editor and travel abroad. So I jumped and, <laughs> and yeah. thought to myself, okay, you know, I didn't know much about the CIA at that time. I really didn't. And so uh, especially I didn't, I thought, well, yeah, I'm not going to be in the sinister um, dark side. I'm going to be doing interesting reports and, and, and making the, you know, helping our policymakers do a better job. So I thought three years and then I was learning so much and I got to travel to England and then to the Middle East that three years turned into six years and turned into 16 years. And before I knew it, um, I was there for 27 years. But I have to say that um, being in the government was definitely um, very educational. I learned to speak Arabic. I traveled and lived in the Middle East for several years. And actually, my eyes were opened to many of those very um, government policies that, that I've criticized in my own writings and in, um, in my demonstrations uh, against the various wars and such. So, you know, every, everything has two sides, you know, positive and negative, and I think I took both from my government experience. It, it, it's funny. It sounds like exactly what many of us have always said the government should be doing more of. That is, instead of you know locking up and torturing some poor schmuck whose neighbor had a grudge against him and fantasizing that you can invade a country and be welcomed as liberators, you ought to start reading foreign newspapers and learning about foreign governments and cultures and translating what they're saying on their networks and so I mean that seems like exactly what you say you were doing uh, somehow somehow the wisdom isn't uh, filtering up to the uh, decision makers well David that's just it I did that sort of work for 27 years before and, and I was actually working at a building in uh, Reston Virginia which uh, dealt exclusively with the open source side um, and it was actually when when I when I left that open source branch of the government, it was because it was in let's see, it was in actually just after um, the the United States invaded Iraq. It was because I was feeling myself also uh, increasing uh, increasingly under pressure in a way that I hadn't felt before. Um, to you know to, to to make my writings useful to people who were using it for. Um, different reasons. For example, um, in the run-up 
to the actually sorry the, the war itself was was just starting the US had just invaded and I was at my desk and I at that time I was in charge of um uh you know Iraqi media this was in in early 2003 and I was getting calls from people in the Pentagon saying well tell me about this new Iraqi paper that's just come up after you know the the Americans have invaded is it pro USA or anti USA and I would try to explain as best as possible well you know they like Americans and they appreciate that that you know um Saddam is you know not in power anymore but they really want the Americans to leave and they don't like the occupation and then David this actually happened a day or two after I I I talked to this person I read in the paper that American troops had gone into the office of this newspaper in Baghdad and completely ransacked it and threw out the computers and god knows what happens to the staff and I thought oh my gosh you know I don't I don't like the way I think my skills are being used badly now <laughs> and um I, and so I, I i wasn't as enthusiastic and of course you probably know now that that the side of the cia that i was on um which was actually back back in the day was very separate it, it, at one time we even had separate cafeterias for the operative cia people who live in a completely different world and were compartmented and and the people who just did the intelligence reports and uh now we we have a situation where i believe uh john brennan came out a, a, a year or so ago and said he wanted these two sides to increasingly integrate and now there are these fusion groups and so basically uh now in the cia you find that intelligence officers are actually serving the ends of the operations side and and that's supposed to be you know supporting administration policy rather than the, you know our old credo used to be you know be independent tell it like it is and that was really fun actually i have to tell you i had i had a lot of fun the first 20 years because we had a lot of independence we were physically separated from langley virginia where where cia real headquarters is and our our views were respected we we didn't have the political pressure that came to bear later when uh, administration pressure just you know or or other pressures on us including from the Pentagon from Wolfowitz's office uh were were, were pushing us to to find you know pick and choose um parts of the media that showed that Saddam was someone that needed to be overthrown or or that there were these weapons of mass destruction which of course everyone knows you know there weren't any so um yeah, um <laughs> you're 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 right that, that I think the original purpose of the CIA probably should have been and, and and frankly I think actually was just to provide this unprejudiced information to policymakers and then there were there there were these other people that had I guess um, worked for the OSS and someone decided to shoehorn them into the new CIA I guess this was in 1947 and give them something to do and and look where that's brought us. So, I agree. Right, which which Truman claimed to regret later and uh and and wrote about negatively. I think it was on the 1 year anniversary of the of the killing of Kennedy as I recall, but uh uh, I, as you know, uh, Elizabeth, I grew up in Reston, and I think I know the building uh, you're referring to. Um, it is not kept terribly secret. Um, it, it sounds like a job of almost speaking truth to power from very close up, uh, that is telling decision makers in the U.S. government what's actually happening in the world and what people around the world actually think, and then watching that information be ignored. 
Is that is that a, right. a fair Ignored description? Ignored or even worse, David, skewed in a way that that makes it serve um, sort of you know uh, violent aims or or aims that that would take us to war. So yeah, you know it's it's um, it's sad when you see your own intelligence or or your own information that that you've worked hard or others have worked hard to translate, you know, being cherry picked and used for. Um, Really ugly purposes, and that's and I think that's what happened with the war on Iraq, and that's what that that, that sort of you know found me then you know marching in the streets with the uh, anti-war movement, and uh, um, I actually got in trouble at work later. In back in 2007, I found myself at the the gates of Kennebunkport, Maine, protesting at, at, at the Bush compound with with a bunch of anti-war protesters, and somehow a photo of me. <laughs> holding up an anti-war sign, made it back to my supervisor. By this time, I was at Langley as a, as a uh, uh, Saudi Arabia political analyst, and uh, I was called into a room and asked, you know, well, what is this? And I just said, well, what do you mean, what is this? I'm, I'm exercising my constitutional rights. But um, uh, it did, they didn't see it that way, and, and they said that, that, you know, my credibility would be jeopardized if I were to go downtown and brief you know, people on the on the Capitol Hill, um, and if this picture, you know, had come out. So I thought to myself, I see. So I have credibility if I were to go to Iraq, for example, and, and support the war in in my capacity as an analyst, you know, at, in the green zone, which, of course, I, I didn't do. Um, but somehow if I'm in, a, in an anti-war demonstration, that that's, you know, not credible. So um, after that, I noticed that I was not given any decent assignments, and I was sort of given <laughs> secretarial tasks to do. And, you know, I think they, they, they really wanted me to disappear at that point, and almost out of rebellion. I thought, you know, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to see what's happening around me, and I'm going to make note of it, <laughs> and then I'm going to, 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 to tell the American people what they deserve to know about it. And, you know, when, when, I, when I did retire and after I, I met Ray McGovern and got into veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. Um, I started writing, certainly not about the highly classified things that I had access to, um, but certainly about the things that I felt the American people <coughs> deserved to know about what what was going on inside um, the government. And you know, one of those things was the pressure that I came under from Paul Wolfowitz's office um, to find the connection between Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein in the run up to the Iraq War. Um, they they kept barraging me with calls, and I kept calling them back and saying, "We've researched it, and we found there's no connection." This was back in in uh, early 2003 between Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, um, and of course, you know that didn't serve their purposes, and 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 of course, I didn't get promoted very quickly in my in my line of work. But if, there also were people who were willing to to find those connections and do things, and probably did very well career wise, but. Um, People, analysts were put under tremendous pressure to come up with things that, that were, it was implied that there was a relationship and that we just we, we hadn't found the evidence. But in the end, I mean, my my response to that office, it was the Office of Special Plans, was to say, well, tell me where you got the, you know, tell me where you got this information in the first place. What is your source? And then maybe that will help me do my research and find out you know, how to find this connection. And, of course, they never got back to me <laughs> for obvious reasons. Elizabeth, Murray, we have about one minute left. Uh, what would you advise people 
today. Is there a value in, in going to work for the Pentagon or the State Department or the CIA and, and trying to make things a little less horrifically, awfully, criminally immoral? Uh, or are you better uh, off trying to influence from the outside? Um, you know, it's funny. I think that's giving advice like that is is I get asked like that all the time. But I think that it it is important to have good people in on the inside. And you know, if you're a person of integrity, um, you you can probably do a lot of good on the inside. You you will have opportunities to to influence and to talk with your colleagues and may, maybe to question things that otherwise wouldn't be questioned. And that's what I found. I mean, I was definitely the odd person out. And, and met many of these people that I interacted with in, inside the government, you know, who you never know how you're going to affect them or how you're going to change them. Yeah. Also, government offers the, the chance to travel and... I, I wish we had more time to go into it. Uh, perhaps someone going in planning to be a whistleblower I could see a rationalization for. But uh, uh, thank you for what you've done and look forward to seeing you in Washington. Okay, David. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at David Swanson. Org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.